Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode and find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so that more people can find this show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Michael Matheson-Miller, Research Fellow here at Acton. Today, we'll be discussing the Overton window and the infrastructure deal. But first, I want to go to Ohio, where there is a Senate primary for the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate that's going on between primarily between two people, uh, Josh Mandel, the former state treasurer, and J.D. Vance, uh, he of hillbilly elegy fame. And as an observer of this Senate race, it seems at times that both of these men are trying to outdo each other in how radical that they can sound in their approach to their politics. And the latest example of that, I think, is interesting, which was J.D. Vance appearing on Tucker Carlson's show last week, where here is the quote from Vance uh, in discussing this. The lead, the setup for the story is that uh, a uh, woman who was harassing some people at Arizona State University was discovered to be uh, some kind of a fellow getting funds from the Ford Foundation, uh, this woman harassing conservatives. And this is the subject of what they're talking about. Here's the quote from Vance. Quote, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars in ill-gotten accumulated wealth. Why are we allowing the companies, the foundations that are destroying this country to receive tax preferences? Why don't we seize the assets of the Ford Foundation, tax their assets, and give it to the people who've had their lives destroyed by their radical open borders agenda? So you would be uh, hard-pressed. If you if you just played that quote without saying who it was— you would think that it was some Marxist from the left talking about seizing the assets. But but no, it's someone purporting to be a representative of conservatism who is making this case. Now, to be fair about the Ford Foundation, we'll link to this in the show notes. Dan Huger from, uh, from Acton wrote a really good piece about them after their current president had appeared on 60 Minutes a few weeks ago, talking about how they were rethinking philanthropy uh, in a way that I think is very destructive to philanthropy. And it's a very good piece from Dan. I recommend that you all read it. But this temperament, I guess, is something we're seeing more and more on the right. And Sam, I'm wondering what how do you make sense of what is essentially someone who you who in being a conservative you think would have an understanding of the rule of law and that you know at minimum that i don't know that we could say these are ill-gotten gains and at at minimum seizing the means of foundational production in order to own the libs is probably a poor strategy going forward if you don't think that kind of thing would be then inflicted on foundations, the cause of which J.D. Vance would probably approve. Thanks, Eric. Yes, there's a lot of different things going on here, right? So I'd recommend that people also read Dan Huger's article on this particular subject of the Ford Foundation, because it's fair to say that the Ford Foundation's vision of life, the universe, and everything is rather different from that of the man who set up the Ford Foundation. In fact, the Ford Foundation is a classic example of a philanthropy that created by a man who was by, by no means a liberal, but it was essentially captured by the left, which unashamedly moved it in a direction that was quite contrary to the vision and sort of general outlook of uh, the person who set it up in the first place. So much so this that- This is O'Sullivan's of- law, right? Um, John O'Sullivan's right, right. law that any institution that is not explicitly uh, conservative or on the right becomes more left-wing over time. Yes, and there were um, members of the Ford family who resigned because they said, we don't recognize this organization anymore. It's got, it clearly is pursuing ends and goals that are quite contrary to what this organization was set up to be. And you see that all over the place when it comes to philanthropy with a lot of different foundations that uh, started off in a sort of centrist or mildly center-right position, but now pretty much toe a hardline position on many questions. So um, that that's one part of the issue. A second part of the issue, of course, is um, the nature of philanthropy in the United States and how a great deal of it 
has moved away from the sorts of things that philanthropy traditionally does in America and what America is, American philanthropy is well known. Um, but it has a lot of it has shifted in the direction of explicit political activism, which is what I think the present head of the Ford Foundation sees his role as being. And it's all wrapped up with woke things and sort of hard left causes and all that. So that's another thing. Uh, but the other thing, of course, you're, you're alluding to is this ramping up of rhetoric on the right when it comes to people posturing or trying to get get themselves in such a position whereby they attract particular votes during primaries and, and other elections. And this, of course, is not a good development. It's not a good development because it leads to people saying things that I think are uh, raise some real questions about the sanctity of private property. It raises real questions about the role of the state and using the state to shut down left-wing foundations. I guarantee that the, the left will use the same powers to shut down right-wing right foundations or center-right foundations if they have that way. So once you go down that path of using the state to try and punish, if you like, your enemies, quote-unquote, uh, then you shouldn't be surprised if the other side start doing it. And this in turn is reflective of a broader trend, I think, on the right. And that is that there's this great desire to strike back, right, to strike back against the left, which, you know, and I will say now, the left are doing some pretty terrible things right now in universities, in the way that they're using um, different philanthropies to pursue particular goals. But that's not a reason to start behaving and talking in the same way. Because I do think that being a conservative means a certain temperament, it means a certain humility, it means a certain skepticism about using the state to achieve certain ends. Um, it also, I think, it, it's reflective of a type of aggression, an aggression which I think is unhealthy because it leads to sorts of enemies language or we must wipe out our opponents. And, you know, I don't particularly like the left, but I think that it's, it's very dangerous when you start using this type of language because then you're in a way aping the left and the way that they talk about many of these particular issues. So there's lots of different reasons, I think, to be concerned about this incident that you're pointing to, which I think is true. You can find it across the board in many sections of the, the conservative world now, there's this use of this type of language and this preferential option for the state. And that, I think, neither of these developments are particularly healthy. Michael, am I wrong to read this as essentially an element of the right admitting that no principle is more important than winning the culture war? That's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I have to think about that that phrasing of it. I. I, here's, here's how I, here's how I would, maybe, maybe this doesn't get to your answer, but let me, let me say this. So here's how I would say it. Like as Sam said, there's a lot going on. Um, so in, in just as a preface, I think, you know, if we want to look at the bad things that the Ford Foundation and the Gates Foundation are doing, I mean, let's look at them. They're doing bad stuff. They support nefarious things, not just in the United States, but I mean, they're, they're connected to eugenics around the world. Um, you know, they have people like Planned Parenthood on their trustees and active with, you know, with those type of activities. And uh, people like Oya Banuju Akocha have target, have, have documented some of the things they do in, in her book, Target Africa. So I'm very, I'm very critical of the Ford Foundation and, and, and the Gates Foundation. And um, I think then there's, so, so the first part of Vance's interview, he was talking about, look, maybe we need to tax them. Maybe we need to think about how, how we're going to address some of these problems. I mean, that's fine. If you want to look at the system that was set up at a different time and you want to say, okay, we need to change it because maybe universities get preferential treatment um, because in a time when those those rules and regulations were set up, we thought of a university as more of a neutral place, but now they're becoming increasingly left-wing indoctrination centers. And so in politics, you can't just favor left-wing indoctrination center. So I, I have no problem with that first part. Um, but once he started talking about seizing of assets, I have very serious problems. And, and here's, here's maybe the way I would summarize it, okay? We are in a very serious anthropological battle. We are in a cultural battle that is, that is profound and deep, and it's been going on for a long time, and it's coming to, uh, you know, ahead in, in many ways right now. We're in a battle over what it means to be a human person, 
We're in a battle over marriage. We're in a battle over the family, over gender, over parents' rights, okay? And so many other things that are part of the culture war, uh, as you as you talked about. But we're also in a battle, and part of this anthropological battle, part of the cultural revolution, the sexual revolution, is a rejection of due process, of rule of law, right? And of the idea of impartiality and justice. So part of the cultural struggle is a repudiation of justice. And the thing that Vance did in when he said, let's seize the assets. Now, look, let me say, if they're ill-gotten, if they were illegally gotten, well, then, we're, then it's a whole other issue. Then we have to dis- deal with the fact that it was illegally gotten. But if they're not illegally gotten or ill-gotten, um, and we, we talk about seizing them, then, then all that is is a participation and acceptance of both the principles and the tactics of the left-wing revolution. So um, I joke, I was born in 1969. I was born to take re- I was born to take revenge on the 68 social sexual revolution. I'm opposed to it fundamentally. Okay, and I'm not. I've never been a leftist. I was not neocon. Right. I didn't get mugged by reality. Right. I'm not going to start appropriating leftist positions on justice that reject the Bill of Rights the Magna Carta, Thomistic principles on, on law and how a, a, how a law must be promulgated and apply equally, and the Jewish and Catholic traditions about justice being impartial that we see from Leviticus onward. So that, to me, is the deepest problem, is that I think Vance recognizes, in a way, maybe some other kind of center-right conservative commentators don't, don't, and I don't follow Vance very much, so you can correct me, both of you, if I'm wrong. But I think that we're in a very serious cultural anthropological battle. The problem is he basically joined the other side when he rejected justice. Yeah, I, what, I, what I think is interesting there is I think that the argument back from that side of the political right would be to say that the left is not playing by the rules. You know, you hear this in this whole, this, this, right. this whole new rules um, argument that the left is not playing by the no, rules. So it not. is unfair for us to bind ourselves by the rules when they're basic. We're, we're fighting with a hand tied behind our back or both hands tied behind our back when they're willing to do whatever they have to do using any means necessary to win a culture war. And, I, I understand it to an extent if you look at it from like a, a game theory point of view, right? If you are – why would you expect – what do the rules matter if your opponents aren't going to adhere to them? You're only hurting yourself. But I mean to me, if you're giving up on the rules, which you know are pretty much all the things that Michael just summarized – if you're giving up on the rules, well, then you've given up on the game of America. You've given up on the idea of this country and what it was founded on. Well, can I say, and you've also, it's not just a game. I mean, impartial justice and rule of law is more than just a game. Right. It's something that protects the weak and the innocent. So I, I, I think it's, if this is a kind of a, it's almost like a, a false dichotomy, a bifurcation of, of politics and life, like what we're just doing politics. Well, you know, this is exactly how politics go bad. This is how evil regimes operate, is they, is they repudiate rule of law, they act in arbitrary manners, and that's unjust. And so if that's what the, the, the dominant regime is doing of the left, the right should not do that if they're, as Sam said, conservative. Because what are we trying to conserve, right? If you, if you want to talk about a, a, a Burkean conservatism, right, we're in a, we're in a partnership between the the dead, the living, and the yet to be born. But we're also conserving this fundamental understanding that justice is good, that reason is good, that human beings have a dignity, that they should not be simply treated as as cogs in a machine, and so forth and so on, and that marriage and the family are pre-political institutions. I mean, here's the thing. So I'm, I'm, as you know, both of you know, I'm critical of the the legalization of of same-sex marriage. Uh, And... I used to teach a course called love and, The Philosophy of Love and Sexuality. So I could make like theological, philosophical arguments of what, what marriage is and its embodiment of inner spiritual reality. Okay, on and on. But the, the main reason I think that the, the, the law is problematic is because I think it's a totalitarian act. It's the state redefining a biological and sociological reality and then requiring obedience. Right. So it's, it's in a sense, it's the rejection of justice. It's just a pure power act. 
Well, if we're angry at the Pure Power Act, you don't respond to pure power by just taking the exact same view of justice is the rule of the stronger. It's not. And I think it's a, I think it's a, I think it's a short-term game for long-term reality failure. And so that's why I'm opposed to it. It's a basic axiom of natural law that you may not do evil, that good may come of it, right? right. So Paul said that right. it's a basic principle of reasoning. It's a basic principle of reasoning about the nature of morality and justice. So when your opponent seizes your stuff or behaves in a way that's unreasonable, that is not a license for you to behave in the same way. Because when you behave in the same way, you behave in a way that um, makes you complicit in the same type of evil. So uh, it's very tempting to give in, right? It's very tempting to say, well, this is just politics. Let's just be pragmatic. Can't we just get things done around here, etc.? But if you're serious about the moral life, if you're serious about questions of justice, if you're serious about acting in a reasonable manner according to the lights of natural reason and natural law, then you don't violate moral absolutes. And that includes things like you don't steal, you don't lie, etc. So this is what I, this is what worries me a little bit about some of the new right, this sort of willingness to sort of move in this sort of, let's call it a Schmittian direction, <laughs> yes. a Carl Schmittian direction about these sorts of issues. Well, yes, I, I, because I think it's very damaging. I, I think that's actually a, a, now that you've brought that up, let me bring this up, which was an interesting piece in the Atlantic last week. Uh, by Emma Green, where she had interviewed uh, Ryan Williams, who is now the head at Claremont. And there was a line in the interview that really caught my attention uh, from Williams. Uh, the founders were pretty unanimous with Washington leading the way that the Constitution is really only fit for a Christian people. I worry about such a conflict when uh, I was talking about the possibility of violence coming ahead. And this quote really caught me. The Civil War was terrible. It should be the thing we try to avoid almost at all costs. And on, on one level, I, you know, you can abstract that enough. They say, well, yes, you know, we were fighting over slavery previously and that the definition of what it means to be a human being. Um, so, yes, you, we, we wanted to try to avoid a civil war, but a civil war was unavoidable there. Uh but I think the point, uh, as, as Michael had brought my attention to a piece by David French over the weekend, is that slavery was was pretty awful. And the stuff that Michael is talking about, as bad as it is within the culture war context, um, the, the idea that it is prepping the ground, that it is justification for the kind of violence that some people seem to be spoiling for. Politics is supposed to be war by other means. Um, but our politics seems to have gotten so toxic that people are taking the war by other means out of it and just arguing, you can go back to Andrew Breitbart, who his whole point of what his political operation was, was war, uh, that there seems to be a desire to identify people as the enemy and that to hint at the idea that maybe violence is justified because of how big of an enemy they are, certainly Schmitty in there, um, we we seem to be glossing over the idea that like the, the theory at least would be that these are still um, our fellow citizens. Uh, the, the kind of flippancy at which some people talk about separating the country and all that would be wrapped up in that or a, another civil war is just kind of striking to me. Well, it is striking. And, you know, the other thing I would say is that when it comes to the founding, yes, I think it's fairly clear that there was an assumption that most of the people living in the United States were operating according to, let's call them broadly Judeo-Christian norms, right? Uh, that was an assumption. But what's, that didn't make itself into the constitutional documents, Right? But what did make its way into different documents was a type of natural law emphasis. And, and you, 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 there are lots of good scholars who have looked at things like the Constitution, and they can. it's very easy to work out and to see a type of natural law logic that's informing it and shaping it and gives it coherence and form and direction. And the thing about natural law is, it, is that it means that you take these, these things very seriously 
It also means that in a polity, you don't get into the business of threatening people who you disagree with. It also means that there's a type of ethical unity which is supposed to bind you in certain principles that you believe in and that you behave by, even if some of your fellow citizens are unwilling to do so. So, you know, I get it. I get why people are angry. I get why people are so furious about what they see the left doing because the left, uh, generally speaking, they don't believe in natural law. They don't believe in anthropology that we would recognize as being true in all places and time. They do believe that the ends justifies the means. And that's all the more reason for us not to behave and think the same way. Because when you do that, you become like them. And people like Carl Schmitt, you know, the, the really the, the leading theorist of authoritarianism in, in interwar Europe, person who at different occasions defended the Nazi regime for the way it acted at different points of history, longtime defender of the Franco regime, etc. You know, for a lot of that type of conservative and that type of thinking, the ends do justify the means. And that is not consistent, I would argue, with the American founding. Either this sort of broadly speaking Jewish Christian cultural background from which it emerged, but also the natural law principles that informed it. Yeah, I mean... That's uh, these this, these are very complex layers of things that are going on, and so you know we're trying to talk about this in the podcast, but it's, it, you know obviously there, there's a lot of we could have a lot of podcasts on this. So let, let me try to touch a couple of things. Um, you, you know, one let me just say earlier, Sam talked about natural law. You know, part of one of the things in natural law is there's just war. There's a just way to fight a war and an unjust way to fight a war, and I think I would argue maybe there's just cultural war as well. Um, I think that the, f- the frustration people have, and Sam mentioned this earlier, like we are in a, in a very deep cultural struggle. Um, you know, I think Terry McAuliffe said, you know, the other day, parents shouldn't be teaching their, telling the schools what to teach. Yeah. I, I pulled this up while you were talking. So this was in the context of a gubernatorial debate between uh, Glenn Youngkin, who was the Republican nominee for governor in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, the uh, former governor of Virginia, former head of the Democratic National Committee. Uh, the quote from Youngkin is, you believe school system, uh, you believe school system should tell children what to do. I believe parents should be in charge of their kids' education. And in response, McAuliffe said, quote, I am not going to let parents come into schools and actually take books out and, t- and make their own decisions. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Right. So that's, this is a, I mean, this is a, like, you talked about Ryan Williams. I didn't read the whole Ryan Williams thing, and I, I, I only read part of the French thing. But Ryan Williams makes, is, is kind of talking about how, I guess, Glenn Elmer's, which I haven't read the essay, so he just says, this was the debate. Like, we're in two different Americas. Right. And there's two different views of America. Now, I will say, like, I, I want to say that he said, this is the part I have it here. William said, you know, obviously he was being provocative, but if Claremont thinks real Americanism is a belief in principles of the American founding, we have to acknowledge that a good portion of our fellow citizens don't agree with our principles and conclusions about what politics is for. Okay. And that way we're really two Americas. And he said, even during the Civil War, I think we're more divided now than we were then. As Lincoln said, we prayed to the same God. We all believe the same constitution. We just de- dis- differed over the question of slavery. So that's first, a big just. Yeah, we should, we, no, we no, should no, no, let me, That's let me, a pretty big just. Yeah, no, that's what French says. I mean, that's that's French's argument. So let me say, first of all, I have to like, I haven't read all of these things. So I'm, I'm a little bit reticent to talk about all the whole things. I haven't read the whole interviews, but you brought it up, Eric. So I blame you. Um, fair. Uh, that's fair. But but then, then um, French says what you say, Eric, you know, we just differed over the question of slavery. The question of whether a person has the right to another human being is a heck of a just. Yeah, so is whether marriage is between a man and a woman. So is whether abortion uh, should be allowed. So is whether uh, gender, uh, you know, surgeries should be allowed on prepubescent children without their parents' beliefs. I mean, these are big anthropological deals. And so I, I go back to this point. If you look at, say, the writings of people like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Augusto del Noche, uh, John Paul II, Carol Vaitiwa, Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI. I mean, they're talking, this is a 20th, you know, we're coming into the 20th century, like 
what's his name? Gramsci said we need to make a long march to the institutions of culture. Well, the, the long march has happened, and we are in a battle over what's a good life, the dignity of the person, what is marriage. Um, and so I think, I think that we have to be careful in, in, in a sense, downplaying the seriousness of this. And I think this is why people are, they don't know what to do. We're in a volatile, volatile situation and they feel that certain elements of the left are willing to shut them down, to use dignity as a weapon against religious liberty by redefining the person based on their sexual predilection. I mean, there it's already in the Ogarda principles. It's in German law, South African law. It's, you know, depending on how you look at it through, through U.S. law as well. I mean, we have a serious situation in front of us. And I don't, and, and so I understand why people are, are worked up. But the problem is we need to approach, and this goes back to Sam's point, we need to do it in a just manner. And so when, when people like J.D. Vance, who are theoretically leaders, um, are talking about, um, you know, expropriating the assets, seizing the assets of people, I mean, this stands in contrast, if I'm not mistaken, right, to um, the, the Fourth Amendment, right, of the Bill of Rights, which protects Americans from unreasonable searches and seizures. Like, would Mr. DeVance want to depose of the Second Amendment or the Sixth Amendment? Right. And so, so the thing, the question is, I mean, this is actually goes back. I'm repeating myself here, but I'm repeating myself because I think it's important. Okay. And so should you, listeners. Um, and so should you, Eric. And that is that. As a marketer, I'm a fan of repetition. So there that's you fine. Go. <laughs> I'll allow it. <laughs> okay. So that, that, I mean, the reality is j how we think about justice, rule of law, and due process is part of the struggle. I mean, so the Mar the Marxian, broadly understood Marxian, you know, institutional march through, through the institutions of cultures, the cultural socialism rejects Jewish, Christian, Magna Carta, medieval American understandings of justice and rule of law, because it's all about power and identity. And the and that's my my problem. Look, I probably if I sat down with Mr. Vance, I mean, he's a convert to Catholicism, right? I think a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I mean, Sam and I are cradle Catholics. I think you too. Mm -hmm. Okay, welcome to the club. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm I'm glad that 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 people are converting their reading things. But this is this is great, good. But I mean, these things have been been talked have been talked about by popes and by Catholic scholars for decades upon decades. And my problem right now is we have a lot of young people who are kind of ideologically inclined. I mean, I think this is one of the problems of our age. I'm shifting it a little bit. But one of the problems of our age is we're, we're ideologically inclined. And that's because we've lost a serious understanding of truth. We live in the dictatorship of relativism. And we've lost a serious understanding of, of reason, where reason is reduced to the empirical. And so this is the culture in which we live. And so everybody's got to have their own theory of everything, their own ideology, and we're in ideological battles. And I say no to ideology, and I say no to leftism, and I say no to the cultural and sexual revolutions. And that's why I say, while I agree with many of the people on the right that we are in a serious battle, we have to engage in it in, as it were, the tradition that takes justice seriously, the Bill of Rights, the Magna Carta, the Thomistic tradition, et cetera, et cetera. And that's my deepest problem. I, I don't think with David French, well, it's just slavery. I think slavery is an intrinsic evil, and I think abortion is an intrinsic evil, and, and I think that performing uh, surgeries on prepubescent children without their parents' Uh, permission is an intrinsic evil. We're in an anthropological battle and it's really serious. So you guys disagree? I, I, I don't disagree with that. What I'm curious about and what I'd like you both to comment on is how did we end up with a polity that seems to either they do reward this kind of rhetoric um, that they recognize, and this seemingly, if you've been following the Senate race in Ohio, the two leading candidates do seem to believe that the Republican electorate there, at minimum, and, and, and that it won't do enough damage to them in a general election, so they must think a large enough part of the polity in Ohio will reward them for this kind of thing, sure. thinks that this kind of rhetoric is beneficial. Um, so either it is beneficial or they have the belief that it is. How did we end up here? I mean, I'm I'm remembering back to 2000, where a last minute drop of information that George W. Bush had a DUI 
20 years prior to that election was enough that in Karl Rove's estimation, it cost them somewhere between like five to seven million votes. And now you have uh, candidates like J.D. Vance talking about seizing the wealth of a private foundation because he disagrees with them politically. And he seems to think that this will be beneficial to him. We'll, we'll see, I guess, in the coming months if that actually turns out to be true. But how did we get here to a point where politicians seem to believe that this is what is necessary, this is what is required of them, and this is okay and expected by the people who would be voting for or for them or their opponent? I think one is people want, people feel that the right has been kind of squishy and weak. And so there's a sense like if we speak in tough language, we're going to be respected. So there's like a, a thumos that people are trying to say the wrong. I think people also thought that worked for Trump. It can work for me. I think another part is I, that the medium is the message. And so a lot of like Twitter and the way, the way Twitter works is that, that that's what gets you clicks and, and but, likes. But what is particularly interesting is how many people are not on Twitter. Yeah. But yes, a lot of influential people are on Twitter. A right. lot of people in the media and a lot of politicians are on it. But the usership of that platform is actually very low. Right. But people, politicians, people who use it seem to think, they project yeah. out that the rest of the world is just like Twitter. And I think, or at least I hope they're wrong about that, but I also think they're wrong about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think, I think that's, a, that's a hope we can have. And I think the last part is just to go with Sam's point, and then I'll go to you, Sam, is I think it's bad strategy because I don't know if you noticed, but Joseph Biden's the president of the United States. And the administrative power is held by the left. So I don't know. I think it's a short-term strategy for votes for a long-term error. I think it's an error. But, I mean, we'll see. I mean, Sam, what do you think? I think in some respects, well, it's a manifestation of particular problems of the present. But it's also in some respects a return to normal in some respects. So what do I mean by that? Well, if you go back to the American founding, you discover that um, – most of the politics in the in the 1770s and 1780s was largely dominated by a highly educated but relatively small group of, of men living on the East Coast who were liked to argue in terms of, let me quote Cicero, let me quote a, a Richard Hooker, let me read this thing from Aristotle to make my point, et cetera, et cetera. But things changed very quickly in the 1790s when you had lots of people coming to the United States and lots of people becoming much more confident that despite the fact they didn't have this sophisticated education of the original founders, that they had a, play, a, place, to, a place and a role to play in the politics of the republic, which meant that things moved in a relatively populist-like question and all the direction and all the rhetoric that emerged with that. So let's think about, for example, some of the things that the Federalists and Republicans were flinging at each other in the uh, election of 1800, right? People were killed, killed in the election of 1800. People told outright lies about their opponents in this, this particular election. And if you go on through, through the history of the United States, I think you see that to a certain extent, this is the type of politics, to a certain extent. This is, and I don't deny. I think that it's been exacerbated by some of the things that Michael referred to um, in his various remarks. But this is part of the stuff of what it means to live in a type of uh, democratic polis. And by that, I don't literally just mean things like everyone gets to vote, but the type of democratic culture that Tocqueville talked about in his democracy in America, and some of the risks that go along with that, because then in, the, in that type of environment, you know, it's very hard to make an impact by quoting Cicero or suggesting that, well, you know, maybe you should read The City of God and take look at Augustine and what he said about this or, or those sorts of things. I shouldn't We're have quoted Aquinas. I was a total error. Right, right. No, I mean, but this is, I, mean, I love it when people do that. Unfortunately, when most people's most politicians do it, they do it out of context and they're usually trying to justify the opposite point of what the person was trying to make. As Thomas Quan um, said, do evil. Wait, yeah. he didn't say that at all. <laughs> right. So, so I do think that to a certain extent that what we're seeing is, if you like, a sort of natural state of affairs when it comes to the type of mass democracy 
because it means that politicians feel compelled to speak in this type of way. I mean, think about what's going on on the left right now. Right? So the left are having this massive civil war about this bill that's going through Congress, right? You have you have the uh, the squad who um, who are arguing for let's spend more money than we can possibly think of because that's going to be the good, and you have some some Democrats saying you know maybe that's not such a great idea, maybe we should uh, restrain ourselves, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, I know who's winning rhetorically on the left when it comes to these sorts of things. So I do wonder whether what we're experiencing is in a way sort of what is part and parcel of what it means to live in the type of mass democracy that that the United States is. Now, the United States is, is constitutionally, it's not a mass democracy, right? It's a federal republic. That's what it is. And a constitutional federal republic is not the same thing as a, as a democracy in the way that that is often understood. But we have a democratic political, small d, democratic political culture that lends itself to people saying more and more extreme things so that they can get that crucial cadre of votes behind them to take them to the next level in politics. Yeah, I think part of me wants to say, to you it is, Sam, to me it's different because uh, that's the way our, <laughs> our political life goes. But I think, um, you know, I think, and Sam, just a, one follow on Sam's point. I mean, when you look at the way the left talks, um, look at the thing that that precipitated this whole question with uh, Tucker Carlson and J.D. Vance. It's like these guys were studying in a room and people came in and went after them. And, uh, yeah, another right. recent example of that from over the weekend, if you saw the video of a bunch of protesters following Senator Kirsten Cinema into a bathroom right. to berate her while she was using the bathroom about her, in their eyes, failure to sufficiently support uh, a infrastructure deal, which we're going to get to uh, the infrastructure thing in a moment. Um, but, you know, with the, to, to invite that uh, that uh, British uh, uh, comedy show that people have probably seen the meme of on uh, on online. Um, when you're following someone into the bathroom to berate them, you have to ask the question: Are we the baddies? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I have to say, at Acton University, and Michael's had this experience before. I've had students <clears throat> literally follow me into the bathroom to ask highly technical questions about something to do with political economy. So I feel the senator's pain. Uh, but but I think I think that that's that's actually the culture we're in right now, right? So we're just in a culture of 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 kind of unhinged um, rhetoric, and part of that is exacerbated by the way people are are they're like um, their their media presence is actually making it's just like infecting real life too. Uh, but I, so I think and I think that's in a sense okay. The left is very strong, vocal, the kind of uh, you know. Woke social justice protests, uh, extreme language, etc. And so the right thinks people on the right think, well, that's the world we're in. We're not going to be mealy mouthed, soft people who think that we're dealing with, you know, this is not the 1980s, and we're not dealing with Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan being buddies, right? We're dealing with people who are fundamentally opposed to our way of life and are very much willing to use the administrative state and the power of the state to shut people down. And so that I think the right says, well, we better speak in language that suits that situation. Now, does it suit the situation? Well, I mean, I think the situation is dire, but is it the right uh, approach? And that's where I that's where I differ from Vance. I think that's gonna just that's basically taking the left and 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 becoming left. It's like last thing I'll say here is, um, you know, there's a a pretty well known academic. He said, we're gonna we need to use Machiavellian means to a obtain Aristotelian ends. Well, no, I'm not going to use Machiavellian means to obtain Aristotelian ends. One, because Aristotle's going to eat, I mean, sorry, Machiavelli's going to eat Aristotle for lunch. And two, like, you know, there's, there's a print, there's a, you have to be principled in the way you approach things. You have to tell the truth. You have to tell the truth with love and you have to tell the truth because not telling the truth is an act of injustice. And I think it, that's that's a whole area where if you want to talk about all these like anthropological issues, we're failing to tell the truth in love and we're therefore we're failing justice and we're acquitting the sexual revolution uh, and we're acquitting a lot of people with power who are harming others. And so I think I've jumped off there a little bit, but I think that the, the element is you you can't simply just become, you know, Machiavellian or leftist to fight leftist. You're never going to win at their game. You have to fight. You have to fight. Uh, using the the principles uh, of 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 the American tradition and also of the Jewish and Catholic traditions. 
Because Sam brought it up, we'll drop it in the show notes as well. But Reason produced a fantastic video about 11 years ago now about the election of 1800 uh, that was framed as like an attack ad and included some actual rhetoric from that election where uh, Adams was called a blind, bald, crippled, toothless man, a hideous, (laughs) hermaphroditical character with neither the force and firmness of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. And in response, Adams called Jefferson, quote, a mean-spirited, low-lived fellow a son of a half-breed Indian squaw sired by a Virginia m- mulatto father. This was actual political rhetoric oh, yeah. in 1800. Right. So it was to, bad to his, I mean, but also remember, what's overshadowing all this is a major ideological split, right? It's between those people who are looking to the French Revolution, like, like our man Jefferson, and saying, that's the future. And then you have people like, Hamilton and Adams are saying, are you out of your mind? That's crazy, right? So so the only thing I'm saying there is that Mm -hmm. underneath all this was a deep ideological conflict about all sorts of things. And that's where we are now. We should have a whole, uh, we should maybe have a whole podcast in the future on lessons we can learn from the election of 1800 and all the dozens of people out there who are thirsting for that kind of thing (laughs) will have their thirst satiated. And it's not just 1800. I mean, some of the other elections, like, like our rhetoric is mild compared to sure, some of the sure. some of the elections you know 100 years ago. So it's yeah. Well, let, that's, I, that's in, in the time in the time we've got remaining, I want to focus very briefly on the the one piece of legislation that seems to be moving in Washington, which is this infrastructure deal that the Senate a couple of days ago had passed a 1 trillion dollar infrastructure bill. And a lot of the conflict, uh, as we mentioned, the incident with Senator Cinema, revolves around whether or not there is going to be a trailer to that that has passed through reconciliation that is going to be larger than the $1 trillion infrastructure bill. It might be uh, as low, low, and this is in part my question and point here, as $1.5 trillion. Although people like <laughs> Bernie Sanders uh, started originally at 6 or $8 trillion. And the whole rhetoric of compromise, right, leads us to believe that, oh, we're meeting somewhere in the middle. Uh, so, you know, if, if it's between, you know, $1.5 trillion, as Bernie would say, and $6 trillion, then, you know, somewhere around 3 is probably where we should land. My question is this. Has the Overton window on conversations about spending and how much money we should spend and the economics surrounding that – Moved too far to be reclaimed. Again, I'll I'll punctuate this with a couple points from fairly recent history that uh, the one point five trillion we're talking about now is basically one and a half times the cost of Obamacare, which was argued against vehemently as being far too expensive for us to afford. And then I will take you back to two thousand eight, where. The then Secretary of the Treasury, Hank Paulson, the number he came up with for TARP was around $900 billion because he thought if he said a trillion dollars, the reaction from people would just be so – they'd be so aghast by it. There's no possibility it was ever going to pass. And now we have spent trillions of dollars in the last uh, year and a half – in relief on COVID and in support of our efforts to battle the coronavirus. Now we're talking about spending a trillion dollars on infrastructure and perhaps another trillion and a half on human infrastructure, whatever that happens to mean. Has the Overton window just completely passed us by in a way to argue that we need to get our spending under control when we're just so flippantly throwing around, let's spend a trillion here, a trillion there, and I guess it never actually does end up uh, uh, becoming real money at some point? It's interesting, isn't it? Because we have seen – this is a very good example of how what was once seen as abnormal suddenly becomes normal. So the idea that we can spend our way out of all these issues, you know, only maybe 20 years ago, there was more, much more skepticism about that, right? Because people thought, okay, we've learned our lessons from the Keynesian period. We've learned that you can't spend your way, you can't spend your way or, or um, Federal Reserve your way out of these types of problems because you just store up bigger problems for the future. So therefore, we need to get our fiscal house under control. And I'll remind people that it was William Jefferson Clinton, who was the last, last, wasn't it the last president to basically um, uh, deal seriously with this question of 
federal spending. We, we, had, a, we had a balanced budget in there at one point in time. Right. There was a little gimmicky, right. but more or less right. far closer to uh, to balance than anything we've right. had since. And my Can we just say that, that, that I was the, the last <laughs> actual president? Everybody else since me has not just, been the president. But here, that's the thing, right? I mean, we had a, that, that was the rhetoric and the climate of opinion, at least among policymakers and a lot of the country, at the time, that a Democratic president had to speak the language of fiscal conservatism. Now, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? If you listen to some of the way that some conservative politicians talk about these issues, you notice they, they it's often, I think it's a lot of it is lip service, the way they talk about fiscal conservatism, because I'm not sure in some cases they would do very much that's very different from what some of the Democrats are proposing to do. I'm thinking, and, and but this also reflects the way in which a considerable portion of the right now thinks that tariffs are good or industrial policy is good or all sorts of extensive interventions into the economy are good because the climate of opinion, overall opinion, has shifted in this direction. And that makes it very hard for even the most principled fiscal conservative to to hold out and articulate a solid position explaining why these... these, these um, these figures being thrown around, 6.5 trillion, 1.5 trillion, it's, it's in that sort of atmosphere, it's very hard to make the type of fiscal conservative argument that I think needs to be made. Yeah, Michael, I think when we have this kind of a shift, we also lose the language to some extent. Uh, you have right now the person being portrayed as the fiscal conservative in this whole argument is Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who's the person <laughs> who is saying, I won't commit to more than $1.5 trillion in addition to the $1 trillion we all have bipartisanly agreed to spend. When, when that person is being portrayed as the fiscal conservative, I, words seem to lose all meaning. Right. I mean, yeah, and I think, I mean, Sam basically, I think, outlined it. I think also there's, a friend of mine always talks about the, the mystery of large numbers. I mean, at some point, trillion is, it's just an un unintelligible concept. And so like we're going to do 1 trillion, 1.5 trillion, like it has no meaning anymore. And so I think maybe, maybe that's connected to this, this point you're making about Senator Manchin, also the Overton window. At some point, people, trillion was a, a bridge you couldn't cross. At this point, it's just a mystery of large number. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like kind of the quantum realm. There's one of these Marvel movies says, how many times is the word quantum going to be used in this conversation? I mean, the, this is like the magnum realm. I mean, like at this point, there's like, it's, it's, un, it's unintelligible, I think, to regular people to think about trillion dollars. And so I, 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 maybe, that, maybe that is just restating your point about the overture window. I typed into Google just to see, because as Michael just pointed out, the way that we went from talking about billions to tens of billions to hundreds of billions to now talking about trillions seemed very rapid. So I, I had to ask, well, what comes after trillion? And I am uh, sorry to report that when you start typing what comes after, trillion is the first thing in the autofill. Um, which doesn't because seem Google's listening. Yeah, to doesn't you. doesn't seem to be very promising. But uh, just so you know, the thing that comes after trillion is quadrillion. So perhaps we, uh, with apologies to the National Review Editors podcast, will leave on this exit question: How long will it be, Sam, before we are talking about spending bills in the quadrillions? Wait, before Sam answers that, when I search that on DuckDuckGo. I get what comes after octillion, black belt, 5G, uh, octane, um, and other things. I didn't get trillion because, see, DuckDuckGo wasn't listening to me the way that Google was listening to you. And Google they was knew. serving up something far more relevant to the actual thing I was searching for <laughs> because than what they DuckDuckGo knew, they, did. But DuckDuckGo was letting me be we will, a free we, human being. Just so you know, there is an upcoming episode of Act in Line talking about Michael's uh, new book, uh, Digital Contagion, Digital Contagion, about how much he dislikes big tech. And uh, and some actual some practical advice that you can take. So look for that episode of Action Line in the future. But I go back to my exit question to you, Sam. How long before we're talking about spending bills in the quadrillion? Well, unless unfortunately, I don't think it's very long. And that's that's a function of many things. It's a function of 
Um, if, you, if someone wants to outdo someone else in terms of how much they're willing to spend, well, that's the logical direction you go, right? But I think the other thing which I, I find disturbing is that so much of the country, and not just the United States, but lots of other countries, and this is partly a result of, the, of responses to the pandemic, um, really does view spending as the way that you resolve so many economic challenges facing us. The notion that the government has a limited role to play in the economy, an important but limited role in the economy, the notion but has sort of been shifted aside and now we're basically in the position whereby not just people who are on the left but there's a fair number of people on the right who really think that this is how you deal with these these types of issues. And until there's a significant change in the climate of opinion, and sometimes that can happen gradually, sometimes it can happen suddenly as a result of a crisis, um, maybe, maybe if inflation continues to take off, maybe there'll be some sort of broader awakening when more people start discovering, hey, that thing I was paying for last week seems to be costing a lot more and my, my salary doesn't seem to be far, going as far as it once did. Maybe something like that will wake people up. But I, at the moment, I'm relatively pessimistic because the case for fiscally limited spending is, is marginal, has been marginalized. And we also have central banks and not least the Federal Reserve who seem to have adopted approach that the more money they can push out the door, the better for the economy. So quadrillion dollar spending bills, five years, 10 years, 15 years? Who knows? But I fear that they will be upon us sooner than we think, unless there's a type of fundamental realignment politically. And I don't mean that just in terms of um, Republican, Democrat sorts of things, but on the right and on the left, where this flirtation with using the state to fix all sorts of economic problems has gone way beyond the left and now engulfed significant sections of the right as well. Michael, how long before we're talking about quadrillion dollar spending bills? I have no idea. I mean, first we have to get to ten trillion. All I want to say is, I balance the budget. Yes, that's what I want to yes. say. <laughs> I would about. I, I don't I, care if it's a trillion, quadrillion, or more. I would balance the budget. That's yes. My answer. Um, so uh, I will borrow now from the McLaughlin Group and just say wrong to both of you uh, <laughs> that it is going to be seven and a half years from now under President Wesley Snipes. <laughs> <laughs> So let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link to where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. For the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.